0: Welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Today's episode is called The Legend of the Lost Dutchman Mine, and it has all the ingredients needed for a great legend. A condemned man's dying wish, insatiable greed, fabulous treasure in gold, an old Apache legend, murder, treachery, a treasure map, an old German-Dutch prospector named Jacob Waltz, a stubborn old man named Adolf Ruth, who just refused to quit searching and paid for it with his life, and the long-since sand-covered tracks of many men and some women who have disappeared in the Superstition Mountains of Arizona in an effort to find a missing treasure pit called the Lost Dutchman Mine. This episode is an attempt to unravel the mysteries and stories behind the deaths that occurred between 1840 and 1931 specifically, with special attention placed upon the questionable death of Adolph Ruth in the Superstition Mountains in 1931, as there are a lot of things there that just don't add up with that one. And we'll invite you to submit ideas after looking at all the evidence and then presenting our theory. This legend is one of the most incredible tales of treasure ever told, so buckle up. We're headed for the Superstition Mountains in Arizona. The superstitions are the largest of the mountain ranges surrounding Phoenix and visible from many miles away along the straight roads through the suburbs east of Mesa. These mountains rise steeply above the flat desert to a high point of 5,000 feet and they're characterized by sheer-sided, jagged volcanic peaks and ridges separated by boulder-filled canyons, all covered up by saguaro at low elevations with other cacti and bushes higher up. Water is scarce, usually only found in seasonal pools. Trees are found only in scattered locations, at springs in the canyons or beside streamways. Hiking is a popular pastime today in these mountains, but most people stick to the trails, carry ample amounts of water, and do not venture near the rugged and rattlesnake filled crevices and rugged rocky areas for their own safety. The trails themselves are long and strenuous not built for average hikers. Hundreds have wandered in unprepared, become lost, broken arms and legs, passed out from dehydration. Where there on the canyon floor, temperatures often exceed 115 degrees. And just as many times, Maricopa County rescue teams have searched for them and pulled them out, if they could find them. Early settlers named the hills on account of the many myths and stories told by the local Pima and Apache Indians about the mountains and tales such as the fable Lost Dutchman Gold Mine. The Apaches told Coronado's 1540 expedition that they believed the mountains were a place of dread where gusts of hot air thundered up from hell's caverns below and that any man who ventured into those mountains for gold would be cursed by the Thunder Gods. Of course Coronado was looking for gold and the Apaches were both tough and smart having already heard of Coronado's army's atrocities against weaker tribes, like the Pueblos, so they might have embellished the story a bit. One thing was for sure, the Apaches didn't want anyone digging in their mountains. If gold was found, more men would come, and the Apaches, perhaps more than any other tribe, were prepared to fight that to the last man, using the harsh environment that they called home as their best defense. By July of 1847, The first Mormons, led by Brigham Young, had reached the Great Salt Lake Valley in Utah, and the war between the U.S. and Mexico was hurrying toward an end with the signing of the Guadalupe Hidalgo Treaty in Mexico City in 1848, which ceded all land from Mexico to the Pacific to the United States. Just nine days before that treaty was signed, gold was discovered at Sutter's Mill, California. The American West was becoming a very busy place by 1850 and held a lot of hope for a lot of people, but it was dangerous. The Indians, especially the Apaches and the Comanches further south, who had been fighting, raiding, stealing women and children from, torturing, and killing each other for centuries up till then, had a new enemy gold hunters. The Peralta family, a large Mexican family based in Compass, Sonora, Mexico, was a mining family with mines spreading, as legend has it, from California to Arizona. And they did two things very well, mining gold and silver and investing. Most of the wealth of the mining went back to the family in Sonora. The bottom was soon to fall out of their land investment business and their access to mining rights when the treaty giving away all their land was signed in 1848. So it wouldn't be surprising to think they might have invested heavily in the Mexican Revolution. They lost out on that one as well. But one very old legend still does exist that just prior to the end of the Mexican American war, the Mexican revolutionaries hid the treasure that they had been given in an old mission. And in those final weeks, when they knew they were going to lose, they loaded up that treasure from that mission and hid it in a cave in the Superstition Mountains. Now the Peraltas needed money, and their one good mine in California was producing less and less. They began to seek gold in more dangerous areas, further from Sonora. Pedro Peralta was the Spanish governor of a huge land area that took in all of present-day New Mexico and Arizona, and he decided to take what he could from the land while he could still do it legally. He may also have been looking for that mythical mine. He sent his son Pedro Francisco Peralta and an army of 400 men, horses, cattle, burrows and supplies and sent them north to start digging in the Superstitions, where they dug, according to legend, a combination of 18 horizontal and vertical mine tunnels in a remote area of the Superstitions. Setting up a base camp in the area known today as White Rock Spring and Marsh Valley and building a rock cabin inside the entrance to one of their larger storage caves which served as an office. During this time, around 1846, the nearby Apaches came to him and demanded that he stop mining the mountains, telling him the mountains were sacred, and he promised he would stop, but he didn't. It was only when word came from Mexico that a treaty was about to be signed giving all Spanish land in the southwest to the Americans, and that he would no longer be able to mine here or in California, that he knew that the operation, which was very profitable, At checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001stories at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. He set up his base camp near water where he set up arrastras and smelters. Then he sent various groups of miners and their armed guards to various locations in the surrounding hills. Some of these were rich placer deposits located in ancient stream beds. Others were tunnels bored into solid rock extending for hundreds of feet into the earth others were horizontal cuts the processed ore would be kept under guard in a storehouse and moved in heavily guarded mule trains back to sonora every three months pedro francisco had found ore and melted it down into gold bars but it was soon coming time to leave while he still maintained his scalp he waited too long Between late 1847 and the spring of 1848, something had happened that angered the Apaches, most likely that Peralta's men had found an Apache mine and were taking everything out of it. The Apaches wanted to stop them, but they didn't have the manpower in their small tribes to take on Peralta's army, and they did not yet have rifles. So they sent runners out in all directions to seek help from the few tribes they could call their allies, most likely other Apache bands as they had alienated most of the other area tribes. The Spanish had made even fewer friends among the Indians in the southwest, and soon the Apaches had a war party. Peralta had now been mining in the Superstition nine months when the courier that regularly delivered his orders to his 18 mining camps came riding in at a gallop and said that one of his camps had been attacked by Apaches and all the men had been killed in their sleep. The party was over for Peralta, he sent the courier out with orders for all the mines to pack up what they could on the backs of burros, to cover the mine entrances and meet back at base camp. They were leaving for Mexico. If they had to outrun Apaches, they couldn't carry most of the gold bars they'd been pouring, so Pedro Francisco quickly transported a great deal of it to one of their best hidden mine caves and caved in the entrance, killing the peon Mexican laborers who had delivered it, thus eliminating any witnesses outside of the Peralta family, who might have given up the location of the treasure. The Apache scouts saw the commotion and packing and sent word back to their chiefs, who held a council of war, planning the attack. In these mountains, there were narrow canyons, and high ground from which to attack a trapped enemy. Peralta knew it, and the Apaches knew it, so they planned an attack that would herd most of Peralta's men into a narrow canyon, where they could be run down by Apaches hidden above in the rocks. All passages to the open plain were cut off. When the signal was given, Apache war hoops filled the air and they rushed in upon Peralta's men who had no direction to go but up the narrow canyon. The unarmed miners, just poor Mexican peons who had been picked up as slaves for work in the mines, ran up the sides of the hills and were killed by Apache warriors mostly armed with stone weapons, some with arrows. Their bodies were stripped by the Apaches and left for the coyotes. The cattle and mules would feed their hungry camps. And what weapons and ammunition they could find could be used for war. Strewn for five miles along the canyon floor were the saddlebags filled with gold ore and the bodies of the Mexicans who had tried to flee on their slow-moving, heavily-laden burros. Somehow Pedro Peralta had managed to escape with little more than a few gold bars his weapons, his horse, and the map showing the locations of the mines and the mine cave in which he had hidden the bulk of his treasure. It was 1848 and Peralta would never return. The site of the initial massacre is still called the Peralta Massacre site today. The Guadalupe Hidalgo Treaty was signed later that year. Mexico lost what is now known as the American Southwest the Peraltas could not legally return to the Superstitions to recover the treasure. Moving the clock forward 17 years to mid-1865 and only months after the Civil War had ended, a small group of army troopers who were pursuing a band of Apache came upon 25 skeletons in that canyon. One of those troopers was a man named William Edwards, who soon became one of the first prospectors in the Superstitions. The skeletons had no clothing and while most of the troopers figured that those were the skeletons of Pima Indians killed by Apaches, Edwards disagreed but wisely kept his mouth shut. He had seen a gold tooth in one of the skulls and suspected that the skull had belonged to a Mexican or Spaniard of good standing. Sometime later, Edwards, no doubt driven by the gold fever that ignores all warnings of danger, ventured back into this highly dangerous Apache territory and rode further down the canyon, finding more skeletons as he did so, those indicating that this had been a running battle. He soon came upon a large campsite that had been overrun by the Apache, a well-established campsite, with buildings that showed it had been lived in and used for a long time. He no doubt found evidence of the smelter as well. If he found the saddlebags with gold, he kept quiet about it, and legend has it that he, and later his son Ben, ended up prospecting the area for years, but found nothing. Or so it was said. That had to have been very dangerous work, with little time for digging between watching for Apaches and grubbing for food and water. Edwards wasn't the only man searching for gold in the superstitions, and while he wasn't finding any, another man was. His name was Jacob Waltz, and he had come from Germany to America in 1846, at 36 years of age, to find his fortune. Knowing something about mining, he had headed for the gold fields of Alabama and the Carolinas, only to find that they had played out long ago. By 1848, he had joined the gold rush to California, leaving New Orleans on a ship and finding employment as a miner in California in the 1850s. Somewhere between California and Arizona, or in a remote cantina, In the Sonoran Desert, pick one. Waltz became a close acquaintance of Miguel Peralta, the son of Pedro, and Peralta decided to share his knowledge of the Arizona treasure with Waltz, as the legend goes. Some say that Waltz saved Miguel's life in a bar fight, and maybe that was the case. That was when old Jacob first heard the story of the Peralta gold mine, from which they had drawn much wealth back in the 40s, sending up bands of trusty peons, who always returned in a few months' time, their burrows loaded with chunks of the precious gold metal. It's unlikely that Peralta shared a map showing all the mine locations, but he did give Waltz the directions. It was probably Peralta, upon finding out that Waltz was a knowledgeable prospector and had mining experience, who suggested to Waltz and his German friend Jacob Weiser that they become naturalized, applying for citizenship, so they could legally stake a claim anywhere in the U.S. Miguel Peralta would now have a legitimate business partner. Waltz, now 60, applied for naturalization in 1861 and moved north with Miguel, his brother Pedro, and Jacob Weiser, most likely headed for the Superstition Mountains in Phoenix. The year was 1870. Sometime around 1875, Old Jacob Waltz walked into a little Mormon-owned store in Mesa, Arizona, to buy supplies. A young girl remembered him this way. The skin on his face was parched and dry from the desert sun and hard as leather. His beard was almost snow-white and stained by tobacco below his chin. His hands were coarse and calloused, revealing many decades of hard work. He no longer stood erect, for his age was showing. No one at first paid him any attention. Till he went to pay for his supplies. In his wrinkled hand was a small cowhide poke. He loosed the strings and poured into the counter yellow gold in a matrix of white quartz. Waltz had found a treasure. Although he kept to himself in a little adobe house on the Salt River south of Phoenix, he occasionally needed supplies and would come into Mesa. He was never reported to be in the company of his old friend Jacob Weiser. Unknown to anyone in the area, according to legend, he had shipped over $500,000 worth of gold to his relatives in Germany, but he himself lived meagerly and never showed it. In 1891, when Jacob was 80 years old and living quietly and alone in his small adobe house on the Salt River, a week of heavy rainfall and cold weather caused the river to flood consuming a portion of the growing town of Phoenix and threatening to wash away the homestead of Jacob Waltz. For several days, he remained trapped in his adobe by the high waters until a friend of his named Julia Thomas, a quadroon who owned a local lodging house, very unusual for that time and day, and who had befriended old Waltz, became concerned for his welfare and sent a lodger of hers named Reinhardt Petrisch, along with the sheriff, to check on him. Waltz was found... 15 feet up in a tree where he had tied himself, figuring that if the flood took everything else, it couldn't take the tree. The two men helped him bundle up his meager possessions and they rode back to Thomas's house in Phoenix where Julia found a dry place for him and fixed him up with food and dry clothes. Waltz developed pneumonia from his exposure to the cold during the flood and Julia did her best to care for him. She knew he had some gold for he had used it to help her pay off some of her debts after her husband had abandoned her. She assumed that what gold he had was gained from a lifetime of hard work, and at first she had refused to take it. But Waltz had assured her there was plenty more where that came from, and not to feel indebted. Now taking care of him, and knowing that in the shape he was in, he didn't have long to live, his trips to the mountains being done, she began asking him questions of where the gold was. He was to tell her an incredible story. He told her he had met Miguel Peralta in the Sonoran Desert. They had become fast friends and that Peralta had shared the story of the treasure and the massacre with him. He said that the gold was so rich that you could break the gold-bearing quartz off the sides of the vein with your hands and a hammer. Waltz also told Julia that the Peralts had sold him the information necessary to find the mine which is where the first hole starts to appear in old Jacob's story because it would be highly unlikely for Miguel Peralta to to give that up so cheaply and unlikely that Waltz would have that much money. I think Miguel and Pablo accompanied Waltz to the mine with an arrangement as to how they would split the fortune and that Miguel carried a map secreted on his person. Waltz told Julia that when he and Wiser arrived at the initial point within sight of Sombrero Butte, They then proceeded down into a long canyon running north and then into a tributary canyon which was very deep and rocky, which was densely wooded with a continuous thicket of scrub oak. Upon entering, they heard a hammering on rock and looked up the steep slope where they saw two naked Indians breaking rock. Consumed with gold fever, they both drew a bead on the Indians and shot them, killing them on the spot. Before the smoke cleared, as Waltz's story to Julia went, Two more emerged from a hole in the earth, and they shot them as well. Another two emerged, and they shot them. The Germans then ran up the hill and found that the naked men weren't Apaches. They were Mexican miners who were prone to work naked or almost naked when working underground. As Waltz's story continued, this was a matter of grave concern because the Mexicans probably had more men nearby. The six murders would be discovered, and Waltz couldn't just claim the mine and work it openly now. Whether the Mexicans were working for someone who had legal rights to the mines, they had no idea. Killing Apaches was one thing, not that there's ever been a good excuse for shooting an unarmed Indian. Geronimo and his band were being hunted all over the area, but murdering Mexican miners was another. Now they tried to cover their tracks, Waltz and Weiser went back out the trail and threw down all the monuments left by Peralta that had made finding the cave easy. They returned to the slope, finding a very rich cropping of auriferous quartz halfway up to the shaft the Mexicans had been working. Climbed further up and threw the six bodies down the first shaft that the workers had been in, and then closed it up. They then hastily planned to take out what they could in a week, leave, and come back at another time. The shaft they found was more gold than quartz, incredibly rich. It was 75 feet deep, made Mexican style, with flaring walls, making ladders unnecessary. They stayed two weeks before Waltz went to the nearby town of Valencia for more supplies. Upon returning, as Waltz put it, his friend Weiser had been killed by Apaches. After that, Waltz was afraid to stay there alone, so he dragged his partner's body into the tunnel they had made, walled it up, and covered it over. Being superstitious, as he said, he never returned to the spot. Julia shared this story with a reporter named P.C. Bicknell, a newspaper reporter who covered the story for the San Francisco Chronicle in 1895. As the story continues, Waltz returned to his adobe home in Phoenix, and according to Julia's telling of the story, lived a solitary life as a hermit, not making eye contact with anyone when he did venture into town, except for seeing Julia. The story is probably true in parts, but leaves a number of questions. According to one report, Walt sent a half a million in gold home to relatives, a job which would have kept him very busy. Why did he become a hermit? Guilt over killing the Mexicans? Or for killing his friend or possibly for killing Miguel and Pablo Peralta who might have accompanied him to the location. Maybe the Mexicans he killed in his story to Julia were Pablo and Miguel. That we'll never know. In his last days while convalescing at Julia's home, Waltz had given Julia precise directions to the cave and the mines that he knew about. In the pre-dawn hours of a Sunday morning in October of 1891, Waltz took a turn for the worse, and Julia ran for a doctor. On her way, she passed two men who were headed for the livery stable and not wanting to leave Waltz alone. She asked them to sit with Waltz until she returned. The two men were Richard Dick Holmes and Gideon Roberts. This was the first time their names would come up in the legend, but their involvement would divide opinion into two distinct camps as the legend grew. When Julia returned, Waltz was dead. We don't know if the two men were there when she returned or not, but we do know from her that Waltz's personal possessions, which were under his bed, were gone when she checked for them. Later, some of it would turn up in Dick Holmes' possession. Documents show that Holmes had some of the ore assayed just weeks after the Dutchman's death and that he sent some of it to San Francisco to have it made into various jewelry items, including cufflinks and a highly decorative matchbox. Julia did go into the mountains in search of the gold with some heavily armed friends and although she found the stone cabin, she said she never found a mine. It's very possible that the 1887 earthquake that shook the area covered up the mine entrances for good. She shared the story with some newspapers, sold some homemade treasure maps and then faded into history. And here's where our tale takes another interesting turn. In 1913, a man named Dr. Edwin Ruth, a veterinarian, had been commissioned by the U.S. government to inspect cattle that were being imported to the U.S. from Mexico. U.S. sanitary codes were in place then, and the cattle had to be checked to make sure the cattle disease wasn't being sent across the border. The Mexican Revolution was underway in Mexico at that time, and the U.S. supported General Carranza's efforts in the revolution. Carranza would end up as president of the New Republic, which would result in the overthrow of dictator president Porfirio Diaz. Dr. Ruth knew the Mexican language and its people there well, and was trusted. During his tenure in Mexico, Ruth had witnessed the capture and execution of a number of revolutionaries. One day he saw guards marching by, escorting a prisoner whom Dr. Ruth recognized as an old friend named Juan González and he asked the soldiers if he could speak to him. They consented, and Gonzalez confided that he was to be lined up against a wall and shot within minutes. Fearing for his wife and children, Gonzalez asked Irwin Ruth if he would please find them and take them to America, where they would be safe. Gonzalez said he had nothing to offer other than some old maps and documents showing the location of some mines in Arizona, which had been owned by his wife's ancestors, you guessed it, the Peraltas. Ruth couldn't save the man, but he did locate the family and got them safe passage to the U.S. where they could start a new life in Texas. He was given the maps by the widow of Juan Gonzalez. He had no interest in chasing down treasure and carried the maps with him on his next trip to Washington, D.C., where his father, Adolph Ruth, lived. For four to five years, Adolf poured over the maps and tried to get Irwin to join him on a search for the treasure. But Irwin wanted no part of it. Finally, Adolf convinced Erwin to take a trip to California with him. But two days into the car trip, Adolf told his son the true nature of the trip. He wanted to find the lost peg leg mine in the Anza Borrego Desert. Erwin was furious that his father had deceived him and upset that his father was fixated on treasure hunting. And this wasn't even connected with the Peralta mines. Dad must have gone deep on researching lost treasure. Eventually, Irwin gave into the plan, thinking that maybe this would take the lust for finding treasure out of his dad once and for all. A few days later, they were pulling the car off the road for a night's rest with the peaks of the Anza Borrego Mountains visible in the distance. As Irwin set up camp, his father took out a flashlight and wandered off into the desert. At night in the desert, you can get lost easily and it's cold, the sand giving up the sun's heat quickly when night falls. Hours passed, and Irwin was worried that something had happened to his father. He flashed his car headlights, yelled, honked the horn, but no answer came back. When dawn came, his father still had not returned, and Irwin drove the car to the last ranch they had passed and convinced rancher C.E. Bemis to help, which he did, pulling together some riders. They searched for four days and finally found Adolf lying in a ditch of a dry ravine, suffering from exposure, dehydration, and a broken hip, but alive. His hip would later require surgery involving a steel plate, and Adolf Ruth would forever be saddled with a painful limp as a result. But Adolf had too much time on his hands, and he wasn't going to give up his dream. He spent his time researching checking out old books, writing letters to ranchers in the Superstitions, and asking them to please send him clippings of any new gold findings out in that area. And when the day came, he packed up and left for Arizona. And it was Adolf Ruth who, with Peralta's map to the hidden mines in hand, and some handwritten notes from the 1895 newspaper story regarding the location of Jacob Waltz's mine in the Superstition Mountains, who finally showed up on the doorstep of one of Tex Barkley's four mountain ranches placed near entry points to the Superstition Mountains. And it was Adolph Ruth who would create the newspaper headlines that ended up bringing hundreds, and later thousands, of gold-hungry men and women to the cursed hell of the Superstitions. And many never returned. Join us next week for the incredible story of Adolph Ruth and decide for yourself how he finally met his fate. Was it the Apache Curse? or was it murder? Some important notes for all of you. We're changing hosts here this month, and you may experience some difficulty in reaching our website or some of our podcatcher hosts. And if so, I would appreciate your letting me know at 1001 podcast at gmail.com. We're trying to restore every link that we've had to you in the past few years. Apple iTunes should be fine, as well as stitcher.com and player.fm. Some of the smaller ones might take a week or two to get back online with us. We'll see. Please keep the great reviews coming, especially at Apple iTunes podcast app. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.